Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wednesday, October 7th, 1998. Sometime in the late evening, a mountain biker in Laramie, Wyoming, falls off his bike while riding along a dirt road. His name is Aaron Cryfolds, and even though the sun has started to set, he thinks he spots something strange on a nearby buck rail fence. Laramie is a rural area, so Cryfold thinks the strange figure is a scarecrow. But as Cryfolds draws closer, he sees it's a person, a young man, tied to the fence. The young man is unconscious and his face is caked in blood. So immediately, Cryfels runs to the nearest home to call 911. Despite intense medical attention over the next few days, the young man dies on October 12th at only 21 years old. His name was Matthew Shepard and he had just been robbed and pistol whipped by two other young men. Why? Well, Matthew was openly gay. His sexual identity leads to what appears to be a clear conclusion. This was a targeted homophobic act of violence. But as new information comes forward years later, the story blurs, leaving us to wonder what exactly led to Matthew's murder. This is Invisible Hate. Hello everyone and welcome back to Invisible Hate with me, Sadia Khan. And with me, Asad Bhatt. So as usual, our goal on this podcast is to research a crime committed against a member of a minority community and then share as much of the story as we can with all of you. But you know what? We are not your average true crime podcast because towards the end, we'll discuss whether or not we believe that specific story qualifies as a hate crime. But honestly, for some cases, it's more obvious than others, like Mulligata Sarah's case that we did a couple weeks ago. Definitely recommend listening to that one too. Mulligata's story deals with white supremacist groups. If that sounds interesting to you, well, hopefully white supremacist groups don't interest you, but it is an important conversation that we think you should check out. Absolutely, Asad. And I think we have covered a few white supremacist hate group crimes. But today's story is no less important. Asad, you told me recently that you're actually familiar with today's case, right? 
Yeah, you know, this is a, a case that I think generally people are aware of. Matthew's name, when you were recording the introduction just right now, you mentioned October 7th, and that's my birthday, actually. Oh. And so in 1998, I would have been studying abroad in Germany when I was in college uh, when this happened. And so, I, you know, at that point, you know, we had to go to Internet Cafe to look up information and news and email and all that kind of stuff. So I probably didn't know about this case right away. But certainly when I returned home or, you know, read newspapers about what was happening, this was a, a big story at the time. Interesting. So as a, as you know, I was in Pakistan at the time, so I had never heard about this before. But you know what I'm thinking, the information that we have through our research may surprise you. You may not know a lot of stuff that we are going to discuss on this podcast. So for listeners out there who know about the story already, please keep listening. There might be much more to this case than you thought. Because let me tell you, there were so many videos and articles and even a documentary and a movie for us to sift through. Also, because there is so much information, we are actually going to split this episode into two parts. We'll release part two next week. There's something else I think I should mention before we begin. So while we were doing our research, we learned that this case sort of has two theories. One is more popular than the other. In fact, the second one is pretty controversial. So we will share the more wildly accepted story today and then the second story next week. And I just want to clarify, I am not agreeing with one or the other. At the end of the day, once we have all the information, Asad and I will deliberate and see which one resonates with us more. Right, Asad? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm already excited uh, to hear what these two different stories are. Um, and so, yeah, we'll definitely listen to both. And then at the end, we will figure out which one we believe the most. Right. So with that being said, let's begin. On the day of his attack, which is October 6, 1998, Matthew Shepard, known simply as Matt by friends and family, is 21 years old. With an interest in political science and foreign relations, Matthew is a student at the University of Wyoming in a town called Laramie. Matthew is from Wyoming. In fact, Laramie is only a two and a half hour drive from his hometown of Casper. But actually, his family is on the other side of the world in Saudi Arabia. I said this was surprising when I read that his family was in Saudi Arabia. I don't know why. Yeah, it, it, you don't hear a lot of stories, at least I don't, of, of American, white American families living in, in Saudi Arabia. I'm assuming that it's because he was part of an oil company or worked his, his parents worked at an oil company, right? You're absolutely right. So it is not as random as it sounds. His parents and younger brother have been living there for years now, ever since his father got a job with a Saudi oil company while Matthew was in high school. In fact, before he came to the States for college, he was living overseas as well. Some really important and even startling events happened during his time overseas. So before we get to the case, I actually want to go back and start there. It also gives us insight into who Matthew was as a person. And this is very important 
because here on Invisible Hate, we like to honor the victim by sharing their background. But I also think this information will be helpful later as we discuss more. So before moving to Saudi Arabia, Matthew spent his childhood and adolescence in Casper, Wyoming with his parents, Judy and Dennis, and his younger brother, Logan. Judy and Dennis described their son as a generally friendly and extroverted person. He likes meeting new people, which no doubt comes in handy when the family moves across the world after Matt's sophomore year. This ends up being only the beginning of his worldly travels. With no American high schools in Saudi Arabia, Matthew actually ends up going to an American boarding school in Switzerland. Asad, have you ever been to Switzerland? I have not been to Switzerland. I'm trying to think of, of where I've been. I've been to many European countries. I've done a lot of traveling up until the similar point in Matthew's life. I mean, this must have been a great experience for him to travel the world and to uh, meet all sorts of new people. Absolutely. And I have done a lot of traveling as well. I feel like now, because I do have anxiety from traveling, especially air travel, I try to avoid it. But, you know, previously I loved, loved traveling. And you know what? Some people would definitely be shy or disoriented after moving around so much as Matthew did. But apparently not Matthew. This boarding school is where Matt meets some of his closest friends. Yes, Adia, that makes sense to me. It's no wonder, you know, boarding school people are living together and going to school. I've never been to one, but especially when you're in a foreign country, it seems like you're going to make some really, really close lifelong friends. Absolutely. And remember that Matthew is not a shy person and makes friends quickly. In fact, it's one of those close friends from boarding school, a woman named Michelle Houseway, who ends up directing a documentary about Matthew 15 years later. It's called Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine, in case you want to check it out. Have you seen it, Asad? I have not seen it, but I will add it to my queue uh, because I, I definitely want to see it. Right. So this documentary has been a great resource because it's where we are able to get a lot of information about Matthew's personality, his interests, things he used to say or do. A friend in the documentary fondly recalls that he was, and I quote, the guy that could be in every group, end quote. How beautiful is that, Asad? Yeah, definitely. I, I get images of people that I went to high school as well. And I can picture who that person is. He was voted friendliest in the class, even elected as a peer counselor. He told his friend Nikki Pearson that he wants to be a diplomat which definitely aligns with the major he chooses in the years to come. But like all of us, he is multifaceted. He also likes acting, theatre and performance. And he's becoming quite the adventurer. Clips from the documentary show him in Italy and Japan and all these interesting, crazy places. And maybe it's that adventurous spirit that inspires him and his friends to travel to Morocco for a school trip. Remember, his boarding school is in Switzerland and apparently the school allows students to take small trips to various countries in Europe. But Matthew and his friends want to branch out a bit and the school approves. And unfortunately, this is where Matthew's story starts to take a much darker turn. Oh no. 
The small group of four arrives in the large, bustling city of Marrakesh in Morocco. During her interview in the documentary, Kate Chill reflects that Marrakesh was very different than anything any of them had ever experienced before. And they are a little hesitant at first, but one night Matthew decides to leave the hotel and go out for a walk alone, according to Kate. Now this immediately seemed a bit strange to me because they are high schoolers, right? There should definitely be some adult accompanying them at all times. A parent, a counselor maybe. Now, Asad, you know I have two daughters and just the thought of letting them walk around at night and alone in a foreign country, honestly, it just doesn't sit with me. I mean, I think that my reaction would be teenagers are going to be teenagers. And when I was a teenager and I studied abroad, I didn't do it, but I knew people who I was with who would, you know, go out after curfew. And hmm. and certainly in my adult life, when I w- was working in Boston, we we would invite um, young women leader, high school students from around the world and, and do a week-long training with them in Boston. And my responsibility was to make sure that they weren't leaving the dorms at night. Yeah. And inevitably, they got out and went out in groups and, and did things because teenagers are going to be teenagers. You're right. Although we don't know why Matthew left in the first place, but based on our research, he doesn't tell anyone that information. But Kate says that in the middle of the night, she wakes up to someone knocking on the door. It's Matthew, his shoes and shirt missing from his body, and he's screaming. He tells Kate that while he was walking back to the hotel, a group of six men pulled him into an alleyway, robbed him, and then raped him. As I mentioned before, I knew about Matthew's story, but I did not know about this backstory. So I'm glad mm. that we're talking about it. And, and obviously this is, I mean, this is your worst nightmare, right? When you're walking, it doesn't matter what city you're in or what town you're in, but when you're out by yourself um, and something ha- like this happens to you, it's, it's everybody's worst nightmare. Absolutely, said The trauma there is undeniable. His friends and family say that Matthew was never really the same after that. And honestly, I don't blame him. He leaves school to live with his parents for a while, but his mother immediately notices a difference in his demeanor. Matthew has lost interest in theater and feels uncomfortable in large crowds of people. The once extroverted and friendly guy now appears more uncertain, unwilling to look people in the eye. Even once he graduates from high school and starts college, these changes in his personality linger. For the next couple of years, he moves around a lot, which no doubt seems connected to the struggles he's facing with his mental health in the wake of his sexual assault. First, Matthew decides to go back to the U.S. and attend Catawba College in North Carolina. When that doesn't work out, he goes back to Wyoming to attend a community college in his hometown of Casper. Again, this doesn't last long, and eventually... Matthew ends up moving to Colorado with a friend, Romaine Patterson. Instead of going to school, he's working locally. Romaine herself mentions in the documentary that his time in Colorado only lasts about a year. 
Some days Matthew seems to be doing okay, but many days as Romaine remembers his depression gets so bad that she wouldn't see him for days. Sometimes she would check on him only to find his apartment a mess, rotting food in the kitchen, a leaking radiator, clothes on the floor, and he often writes his feelings in a journal. His friends read some passages in the documentary and Matthew states quite clearly that he's feeling lonely, depressed and confused. And it is this worsening depression that leads Matthew's friends and guidance counselor Walter Bolden to encourage Matthew to come back to Wyoming. Back to Laramie. And this, as we know now, ends up being the last place Matthew ever lives. So I said I want to pause here for a second because this is just so painful. To know that he was already struggling with such a traumatic event before what happened in Laramie is so hard to read. You know, Sadi, I didn't know any of this uh, before you brought it up. It's, it's horrific. You know, I think that here was a young man who was going to take over the world and, and then this traumatic event happened to him. You know, Sadi, as you were speaking, I, I had flashbacks to my time in Marrakesh about 10 years ago on a biking trip uh, with a group and, mm-hmm. and I was walking the streets by myself um, late at night. And, and, you know, I don't want to blame the city or Morocco or, or anything like that, but you know, you just got to be so careful when you're out and about. And then when something like this does happen, just the, the impact that it can have on you for years and years to come um, is just, I really feel for him. Absolutely, Asit. You're absolutely right. And you're also right that we can't blame places, right? Because unfortunate incidents can happen anywhere. So Matthew is initially reluctant to come back to Wyoming, but he does so anyway. He's still interested in political science and foreign relations. So he enrolls at the University of Wyoming, which eventually seems to have a positive effect on his mental health. And he's growing more comfortable with his sexuality as well. By now, he has already come out to his parents who say in the documentary that they already knew he was gay. More importantly, Asad, his sexuality didn't even matter to them. So I'm just glad his parents were so accepting. Yeah, they sound like some great parents, parents of the year, especially, you know, in that time period. It wasn't, you know, 1998, 1999. It was still in some circles, uh, a lot of circles, not okay to come out. And and certainly many parents struggled with it. And so it's great to to see that he had that support system from the get-go. Absolutely, Asad. Now, Matthew also ends up joining the LGBT student group on campus. And this, unfortunately, brings us up to date on all the details and background surrounding his death, Asad, because this same LGBT student group is having a meeting on the day of Matthew's attack. Matthew has been active in this student group, so he goes to the meeting. We learned from an archived New York Times article that during the meeting, a fellow student named Jim Osborne actually warns everyone to be careful. Jim says that the week before he was walking across campus when a young man called him a slur and tried 
to punch him. So this is back, we're now back in October 6th of 1998? Yes, I said that's right. So knowing what happened that night, Sadia, Jim's comments are even scarier. But at the same time, I'm glad that at the very least, Matthew's sexual trauma did not seem to stop him from eventually embracing his identity more and finding community. Um, This group really feels like a silver lining to me, you know, especially for that year, 1998. Again, this is just 25 years ago. And I mean, we were both alive at that time. I Mm. mentioned I was studying abroad. And, you know, the politics of the LGBTQ community was definitely not the same as it is now. You know, gay marriage wasn't legal yet. And policies like don't ask, don't tell still shrouded sexuality with taboo. I'm also thinking about like the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and early 1990s and kind of like the overt homophobia that surrounded that as well. Good point, Asad. And to be honest, I was in Pakistan at the time, so nobody even talked about one's sexuality. There was no conversation at all. Yeah. But anyways, the meeting ends, and afterwards, Matthew decides to go grab a drink at a local bar called the Fireside Lounge. He's alone, but according to various sources, Matthew is feeling social. From the documentary, we learned that the bartender that night, a guy named Matt Galloway, remembers Matthew mingling, talking to different people. Maybe it's a glimpse at Matthew's old, extroverted self. The news source, The Guardian, even claims that it is karaoke night. The music is playing, the alcohol is flowing, and apparently the Fireside Lounge is a gay-friendly location according to multiple sources. So you can imagine that Matthew may feel safe here. But the bartender says that about an hour or so later, around 10 or 11 p.m., two other young men enter the bar. It is 21-year-old Russell Henderson and 22-year-old Aaron McKinney. The Wyoming History website, wyohistory.org, states that they are both high school dropouts and don't have much money to their name that night, which, by the way, is an important detail. So I want our listeners to pay close attention to it. According to a 2018 article from the news source Coloradoan, investigators would later learn from Aaron's girlfriend that the two men had to rummage through couch cushions and ashtrays to get enough coins for drinks. So basically, they didn't have money. Matt Galloway, the bartender, confirms this. He says they did, in fact, pay for their pitcher of beer with nickels and dimes. Now, quick pause. I want to remind you of the controversial thing about this case that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Remember, this case has two theories about that night. So now, to avoid confusion, I'm only sharing the details from the first theory and then in part two, we'll go back to give you the alternative story with some new details. But according to this sequence of events, Erin and Russell have never met Matthew before, but as we have learned, Matthew has an open and friendly demeanor, so it's no wonder that the three start chatting away Soon, Aaron and Russell step away to use the bathroom, it seems. But as investigators will learn later, the two young men are actually devising a plan. 
they want to rob Matthew and in order to do so, they decide to pretend to be gay as well and lure him into their car waiting in the parking lot. The Denver Post writes that in a later interview, Aaron simply says that Matthew was, quote, obviously gay. This is an important detail because the term hate crime means that you have to be aware of the person's identity. Yeah, Sally, I think that's an absolutely great point uh, to make. Um, and the other thing that I was just wondering was, so they were going to pretend to be gay. What, what does that even mean? Yeah, I said I had the same question, like pretending can mean a number of things, but because Matthew leaves the bar with them, maybe Russell and Aaron invite him somewhere. Maybe Matthew thinks that they are all hanging out together. Keep in mind, these men are all within a few years of each other. So even though everyone should always be wary of people they don't know, I can understand why Matthew would feel comfortable leaving with them. He's a people's person after all, right? Uh, now, Walter Bolton, who, if you remember, is Matthew's friend and counselor, states in the documentary, and I quote, some of the things that made him such an incredible person are also the things that made him an easy target, unquote. Things like being trustworthy and sociable, which can unfortunately be used against you, right? I can envision the type of person Matthew is and what a good-natured being he probably was. Absolutely. But another thing that makes Matthew, quote, an easy target asset for Aaron and Russell is his small stature. He's only five foot two and weighs just over 100 pounds. Uh, tiny. Yes. So Aaron and Russell use this to their advantage when they leave the bathroom and carry out their plan. It's around midnight when Matthew follows them out of the fireside lounge and into the parking lot. The three climb into Aaron's car and according to the documentary, Russell is the one in the driver's seat, which must mean Aaron and Matthew are sitting beside each other. And this is where Matthew's expectations of the night take a sudden and frightening turn. These men are not trying to make friends. In fact, they want Matthew's wallet. But even once Aaron takes it, Russell drives away from the bar. And this is so mind-boggling to me. I said, why would they do that if they only wanted Matthew's wallet? It's interesting. So I just want to be clear here. So we're saying that as soon as they left the bar, they got into the car and then they robbed him right then and there. And then even after they rob him, they drive away with him in the car. Yes. Absolutely. And now everything rapidly escalates. Aaron starts punching Matthew. Worse, he has a handgun and starts pistol whipping Matthew as well. Oh my goodness. This means he was taking the handle of his gun and bludgeoning this other young man with it. I said repeatedly. So much hate and so much violence. The assault continues as Russell drives to a remote area outside of Laramie. They pull Matthew out of the car and for whatever heinous reason, they tie him to what's called a buck rail fence, a simple wooden structure that almost blends into the natural landscape surrounding them. By this time, Matthew is unconscious as Aaron has beaten him around 20 times. 
with the back of his gun. They already have his wallet, but they take Matthew's shoes as well. That is brutal, Asit. Mm-hmm. And yeah. just like that, they drive away, leaving Matthew in the middle of this cold and quiet field. No one sees them or hears them. It's dark and they are surrounded by nothing but dirt and grass. I mean, Sadia, it's mind-boggling that things escalated so quickly, you know, and what could Matthew do, you know? Like, here he is, the small guy in between two other men getting the hell beaten out of him. And you can only imagine the pain that he's been in and, you know, him thinking, oh my God, again, something like this is going to happen to me. It's just, it's devastating. You know, Sadia, I was remembering that you mentioned the beginning of the episode that a bicyclist ends up finding Matthew tied to the fence. I guess that happens soon after Aaron and Russell leave. No, I said actually not quite. It's devastating to imagine, but Matthew is lying on his back by the fence for about 18 hours. Oh man. Before the bicyclist comes along. It's such a rural area said that there aren't too many people around. And reports say that Matthew is probably unconscious the whole time, so he can't even cry out for help or try to free himself. But yes, as I said in the beginning, a bicyclist in the area falls off his bike and sees Matthew, and then he calls 911. When police and paramedics arrive, they think Matthew is a child at first because of his thin, short stature and braces. His face is covered in blood, and I said one detail in particularly kept popping in our research about the crime, which is that there were two tear tracks down his face, streaking through the blood. That image just seems to stick in people's minds. Yeah, it sticks in mine too, Right, mine too. His injuries are so severe that the local hospital has to transfer him to Buda Valley Hospital all the way in Colorado. He goes straight to the intensive care unit, but he's in poor condition. The wounds across his head are severe and he's in coma. They put him on life support, but for all intents and purposes, doctors have declared him brain dead. During this time, Matthew's family is still in Saudi Arabia. In the documentary, Matthew's parents, Dennis and Judy, recall it being five in the morning for them when they get the call from the hospital. It's a shock because they had just seen Matthew in late August for a family camping trip, but now they learn their son might not make it. I don't even want to imagine, I said, what that felt like because again as a mother of two kids it just makes my body chill it's so scary just the thought of it oh i mean the the entire scenario of getting a phone call you're literally on the other side of the world and you have to travel i mean i i think you know i think about them having to get on a plane for whatever, 20 hours to get to where they're going. And that entire time, you know, just having to think, you know, what happened to their son and will they ever see him again? And, you know, I just, uh, I mean, I, I'm with you, Sadia. It is just so sad. 
Right, and Matt's younger brother, Logan, who we mentioned in the beginning, is only a senior in high school at the time. Now, Judy states that Logan couldn't even go in the hospital room at first. He could not bear to see his brother in that state. Logan himself doesn't speak in the documentary about his reaction on the day he learns about his brother's dire condition. In fact, Logan declined participating in the documentary at all. I'm sure that even years later, Asad, it's a difficult subject for him to talk about. In the early morning of October 12th, 1998, five days after Matthew is tied to the fence, he dies. It's so devastating. And I've gone to, obviously, unfortunately, many funerals in my life, and some of them have been open casket and those memories stick in your head. And so I can understand Logan not wanting to see his brother in that state and not wanting to talk about it. And obviously to see a loved one in that, that state, you know, you don't want that memory uh, forever. Yeah. So I agree. So that is the end of part one. But Asit, this is actually only the beginning of the case. We still have to cover the litigation that follows, the large wave of media coverage and publicity this story receives, the fate of the perpetrators, Aaron and Russell. And don't forget that there is another more controversial lens to this story that comes out years later. Lots of stuff we still have to get to, but that will all be in part two. This story is a lot to swallow, so I think it's good to take a break in between. But what do you think so far, Asad? Yeah, Sadia, you know, I think that we are giving this story the time it deserves because it is such an important hate crime that has happened in our nation's history. And so, you know, I think for me, I've learned a lot already about who Matthew was as a person and and the circumstances surrounding his his death. And so it's interesting for sure. Sadeyu, what do you think? Asada, as I mentioned in the beginning, I didn't even know about the case. So I'm learning everything for the first time. Um, and absolutely, we want to honor Matthew. We want to give this case the time and the respect that it deserves. Um, so we will come back to it next week. Yeah, I think, Sadio, I think for me, the big takeaway in this first episode is just all the regular scenarios that Matthew found himself in and then being victimized because of it, you know, just walking around in the city, you know, like being a traveler, first of all, you know, and walking around in a, in a new city, just, you know, excited to be there. And then two, going to a bar in his hometown and socializing with people like these are scenarios that everybody, most everybody has experienced in their life. And so for him to be the victim of, you know, two horrific um, incidences uh, for doing something so seemingly normal um, is really upsetting. You're absolutely right, Asad. You know, when I think of it, it's like Matthew was an easy target for just existing, for just being himself. I think that's exactly right, Sadia. 
next week we'll pick up where we left off so please make sure to look out for that next episode but for now thank you all for tuning in to invisible hate please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover you can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com you can also find us on all the social media places you can tweet us or hit us up on instagram just search for invisible hate podcast and if you like what you hear please 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 share with a friend invisible hate is a joint production of rebellion media and immigrantly we'd like to thank our team which includes michaela strather isabel havens lindsey gamble and promo trapperty our music was done by simon hutchinson join us next week for part two until then i'm asad butt and i'm sadia khan